Our scripture, it comes from Romans 5, chapter 6 through 11. We looked last time at the hope of our salvation from one particular angle, and that angle was all of these benefits that we have. That is, all that we have through Christ. We recall we've been justified by the faithfulness of Christ, so we trust Him. We have peace, we stand in grace, we have hope of the glory of God, and we have this love of God that's poured out into our hearts. Well, the passage that we will read today comes at the hope of your salvation from another angle, and that is the basis for it, that it's grounded in the death of Christ and the life of Christ, and those are grounded in the love of God. So please stand together and let's read, or I'll read Romans 5, 6 through 11. Paul says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were... For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, please. Father, again, we pray that you would take this word, however brief our time, we pray that you would take it, that you would use it, that you would convict us, that you would strengthen us, that you would comfort us, that you would encourage us by it. Or we pray that you would heal us and that you would raise us up by this word. We ask that you would do all that you intend and purpose. We know that we can trust you to do that. In Christ's name, amen. So where do, you, where do you go when you have something that's broken? Where do you go when you want to make sure that whatever's broken, it gets fixed and it stays fixed? Well, if you're like me, you go to a professional. You don't go to YouTube. I don't, I don't, that's, <laughs> that would be bad, well it has been bad when I've done that in the past. You take your car to a mechanic, that's somebody that knows how to do mechanical things. You, t you, g you go to a doctor if you're sick, right? Well, I don't, I mean, men in general don't, but... You call a plumber when, the, when there's something wrong with your plumbing. You call an electrician when the light doesn't work. I mean, after you've tried to change the bulb. Right? We could go on and on. You go to somebody. 
that's a, if not a professional, at the very least, you go to somebody that knows what they're doing because you don't. And at the very, very least, you go to somebody else so that once it's fixed, if something goes wrong, you can blame them. It works. So where do you go when it comes to the hope of your salvation? What happens when your confidence teeters and gets rocky? Where do you go then? If you want security, if you want to know whether or not the peace and the grace, the hope and the glory of God, this love of God that's been poured out into your hearts, if you want to know whether or not that is going to hold for you, In this passage, Paul tells us, if you want security, if you want somewhere to hang your security, if you are here now or have been or will be in a place where you doubt, where you're not sure, or how about this one, where you don't feel it, this security, Where do you go? Well, in 6 through 11, we'll see that the hope of your salvation is secured by the love of God in two different directions. The hope of your salvation is secured by the love of God expressed in the death of Christ and expressed in the life of Christ. Both of those. So we'll start with the first one. The hope of your salvation is secured by the love of God expressed in the death of Christ. Or as one writer, I think, puts it, which is, I thought, really helpful. This experience of the love of God poured out into your hearts that Paul just talked about in verse 5 is grounded in the expression of the love of God. Verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There are two things that work in the direction of you experiencing this security. First is a description of you and then a description of God. So the description of you is in verse 6 and then the latter part of verse 8. And this is funny because typically, typically when you want to encourage somebody, when you want to strengthen them because their confidence is shaken or they're down, what do we normally do? We say things like, You got this. We say things like, oh, you've been through hard stuff like this before. Look, you got through it then. We recount these wonderful attributes of that person. Usually that works. But that's not, that doesn't work here. It doesn't work that way. The confidence 
that you can have in your, this hope of salvation comes from knowing and remembering the truth about you. Notice the parallel. While we were still weak, while we were still sinners, so if you just imagine, weak, sinners, and then the latter part of those verses, ungodly, us, you. That is the way that you are described while you were still weak, sinners, ungodly. That timestamp is hugely important. I don't know how it is that we do this, but I think that we all do it. We recognize, and I'm sure that when you're having lunch today and you ask this question, um, I know, why are you saved? How were you saved? Most of you probably are going to recognize, no, 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 I was a sinner. Saved by grace. But then somewhere, somewhere along the way, we switch it up. And we start to think that somehow that depends on us in some way. It's a, it can be a slow, imperceptible shift to you thinking that somehow you affect this thing. Well, what you re- need to remind yourself, what you need to remind your fellow traveler sitting beside you, is that Christ died for you while you were weak, while you were sinners, while you were ungodly. In other words, salvation came to you when you were totally helpless to save yourself. And it's no different now. That hasn't changed. You'll see why in just a bit. That's the description of you. So if you want to know how this hope of salvation can can be secure, go home, look in the mirror, and say to yourself, weak, sinner, ungodly, Christ died for you. The second is surely more encouraging, and that is the description of God. Or maybe, actually, it's not more encouraging. This really makes this encouraging. It's the description of God. And it's in verses 7 and then the first part of 8. This is all about God's love. Paul says God demonstrated, showed his love. But he does this with this funny comparison. It's comparison with human love. I want you to think about this. Really. Who would you die for? Who would you die for? I I think this is a lot more rare than we think it is. Who would you die for? Well, the picture that Paul paints in his comparison, 
It's not very encouraging. He gives two people, a righteous person and a good person. Righteous person, now keep in mind, this isn't about the person who would die. This is the person you would die for, a righteous person. A righteous person is someone who is just. Right? They are just with their dealings with other people, with one another. Right? This is someone that you trust because their dealings are just, right. And then the good person is a little bit different. The good person is somebody that's kind, someone with whom that you have affection. Right? Now, Paul says, all things being equal, human beings, the chances, if you're a righteous person, the chances of another human being dying for you, scarce. Hardly. Now, if you're a good person, someone for whom someone has affection, Paul says, maybe. Maybe. Well, you see the setup here. The setup is that you are neither righteous or good. In fact, you are weak, a sinner, and ungodly. So the chance of another human dying for you, zero. I mean, would you die for someone who is weak, a sinner, ungodly? I think we would like to think of ourselves as virtuous and maybe in that regard. But not so with God. God demonstrated his love for you while you were weak, sinner, ungodly. How? Well, while you were weak, sinner, ungodly, Christ died for you. That's how. That's how God showed his love. People of God, could he have done it any more clearly? Could he have expressed this to you, his love, the absolute certainty of his love for you, to you, through Christ, other than reminding you of who you are. This means, what this means about God's love, which is why it's such a secure foundation for your hope, is it is really, really, absolutely free. Meaning this, I don't mean by that simply that he gives it freely, Graciously, I mean that it is not dependent on you. God's love wells up from him in himself. That's all about being God. His love is free in that it is not bound to your likability, to your amiability, to your affability, any ability. It's not tied to that. It comes 
from within God. And it's given. So the hope of your salvation is secured by the love of God in the death of Christ. The second thing, this hope of your salvation is secured by the love of God as it's expressed in the life of Christ. Look at verses 9 through 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The concern here is the future. The concern here is about the wrath of God. Remember Paul has mentioned that back in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 and then chapter 2. That was the question. Facing God's wrath. How can I know? Thank you. I know that right now I have this peace. I know right now that you say I am standing in this grace. I know right now that you say I have this hope of the glory of God. And I know right now that you say I have this love of God poured out into my heart. But how am I going to know that that will hold then? We're not out there yet. We're not there yet. How do I know that that will hold then? That those things won't come apart? Well, you get this since then, if then construction. What is true now? Verse 9, what's true now is that you're justified. Justified by his blood. That's justified by the blood of Christ. That's that atonement. That's the propitiation. That covering. Christ spilling his blood for you. To cover you. To assuage this wrath. And that means that you're acquitted. That means that you have been brought into his kingdom. You've been brought into a relationship with him. What Paul is saying, and this is what you and I need to get... This is the way the argument works is God has already done the hardest thing. God has already done the most impossible thing. That is to make it possible for you to stand before him in his presence, in relationship with him, given that you are weak, a sinner, and ungodly. In other words, he's saying this, since the hardest thing has been done, you've been brought out of that kingdom of darkness, and we'll, we'll talk more about this next week, out of that kingdom of darkness, and you've brought into this kingdom of his son, then guess what that means? Where is God's wrath directed? Is it directed at Christ now? I mean, it was then, but is it directed at Christ now? No, what we're anticipating is it's this kingdom 
that experiences the wrath of God. But since you're not in that kingdom, you've been brought into this kingdom, the kingdom of his son, then that's not what you have to look forward to. The hardest thing, the most difficult thing, the most impossible thing has already been done for you. For us. And then verse 10, Paul tells us why. And this is kind of where he shores up his argument. He explains it in the same way that he did in verses 6 and 8. If while you were uh, weak, if while you're a sinner, if while you're ungodly, all of that stuff flows into what he says here in verse 10. If while you were enemies. Actually, it intensifies it. It intensifies it. Weak, sinner, ungodly, enemies. Standing in opposition, deliberate opposition to God. If while... You were enemies. God showed his love. He brings you into himself, to his kingdom, through the death of his son. If he did that, my goodness, what do you think he is going to do with you now that you're reconciled? Think about this. That's what he did with you when you were an enemy. Now you're reconciled. That's his point. What do you think he'll do? Will he throw you away? You reconcile. Will he shift the weight now that you're reconciled? And you'll go, okay, now it's all up to you. God says, you got this. No! That's not. You know how I know that the answer is no? Because did you know what Paul said there? And he loves this stuff. Do you notice what he said? The two words. Two words, much more. If while you were enemies, he did this, much more. If while you were weak, he did this, much more. If while you were sinners, he did this, much more. If while you were ungodly, he did this much more. If he did all of that through the death of his son, much more will he save you by his life. By his life. That's referencing, at least in part, that's referencing resurrection of Christ. If while an enemy, Christ, the Son of God, died for you, what do you think he's doing for you now that he is raised? Is Jesus gone, all right, I did it, we're good. Is that what he's doing? No. 
No, it's not. Why is it much more? Because in God loving you and giving you his son in death, in his resurrection, he's given you a son, his son, that is a high priest for you. He's still a high priest for you. As a high priest, he does a couple of things. Well, he does a lot more than that, but I'll just touch on two. As a high priest, he intercedes for you. This is Hebrews 7. His, his priesthood is perpetual and it's absolutely complete. And he intercedes for you. Hebrews 7 chapter, or excuse me, chapter 7, beginning at the end of verse 24, the author says, But he, that's Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for you. That means right now, as we are gathered here, right now, Christ is living to make intercession for you. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a, such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He has no need for that since he did this once. Once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, that is God's promise, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. As you draw near to God through Jesus Christ, you never need worry whether you can come before him. Please hear that. Now, maybe, maybe we need to get a, 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 an apprehension of just who we are coming for or coming before for that to really hit us. I mean, you come before the triune God, the God who created you for himself. That, you didn't come to a seminar. You came to, before the God of the universe. And it's not me. That's, that's who you're in the presence of. Certainly always, but particularly as we gather, we gather to worship. We forget that. But here's the thing. You have a high priest 
who's announcing to you again what he has done for you. You have no need to worry whether or not you can come before this God. This God demonstrated his love for you by giving you this kind of priest, his son. Because he's this kind of priest, that means your salvation is complete. There's nothing lacking. Christ did all that needed to be done and accomplished. And he stands before the Father, interceding. His very presence is an appeal to the Father. And he stands interceding, praying for you. Right now. Right now. Remember John chapter 17. Father, keep them. Keep them from the evil one. Protect them. And then this other part, you have a high priest who is your helper. And this is just absolutely amazing. Again, from Hebrews. This high priest is your helper. Hebrews 2, verse 17, it says this. Therefore... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's you. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who who are being tempted. You have a high priest who is identified with you. That is to say, he entered into this kingdom of darkness over here. He entered into this suffering, maintaining his sinlessness. That's why you have a high priest who doesn't have to offer sacrifice for his own sins. He could be the sacrifice. He identified with you. When we sympathize, when we empathize with one another, we still only have like, we, we, we get close but barely enough to really get where somebody else is. But you have a high priest who indwelt flesh, God, with you. He identified with you. You have a high priest who sees your need and he cares. I mean, do you, do, you, do you think that? When you are struggling with sin, is your first thought, oh, I am so thankful I have a high priest who sees me in this mess and cares. Is that where you go? Is that where you hope? You have a high priest who will never, ever fail. So you have a high priest who's merciful. He sees you and he cares. And you have a high priest who is absolutely faithful. He will never fail to do his job for you. And so you have a high priest who comes to your aid as you struggle. That's help. 
You don't just have a passive high priest. You have one who is active. Actively advocating for you. Actively interceding. And the last text from Hebrews is Hebrews 4. Listen to this, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a pre, high, uh, excuse me, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way, excuse me, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You have a high priest, and this is most explicitly stated, more so than in chapter 2. You have a high priest who sees your frailty, who sees your struggle with sin, who sees that you're weak. He sees that. He sees all of it. He sees even the inadequacy of the faith that you have to trust in him. He sees it. And you know how he deals with you? He deals with you gently. That's, that's what he means when he says he's not unable to sympathize with you and your weakness. In 5, verse 1, that's what he goes on to talk about in comparing them, Jesus, with the other priests. Dealing gently. This high priest ushers you into the throne room. He ushers you to a throne. But it's a particular kind of throne. Because there are other thrones talked about in Scripture. This, in particular, is the throne of grace. That's where he takes you, this priest. He brings you in to find that mercy, that dealing gently with you. He takes you to that throne to find what you need. Now again, all of this with a people who are weak. That's, that's what he's doing for you right now. That's what he's, that's what he's right now, this, this, this moment, this is a transaction with you right now. He's giving you what you need. Maybe the question is, are you coming? Right now, are you coming? And here's the beautiful thing, right? If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're here, and you're thinking, man, I want to come, but I don't know that he's really going to, that he's going to care. I mean, look at me. I'm not, I, I'm not sure. I'm actively right now doubting. You know what he says? 
Come here! That's what he says. That's the great irony here, isn't it? Even right now, you want to clean yourself up so he will see you. And he's saying, stop! That's not how this works. That's not, that's not what I've done for you. So you have this, this expression of God's love in both the death of his son and in the life of his son. Now, your father is loving you right now. And that is why Paul ends this section in his normal way. And more than that, what? More than that? Yes, more than that. Not just more than that we don't have wrath, but more than all of this, more than the peace and the grace and the hope and the love, more than all of that, right now, you rejoice in God. That's what you have right now. This, this joy, this delight in Him now. We boast in Him. We boast in Him. We rejoice in Him. We celebrate in Him the only way that we can through our Lord Jesus Christ. People of God, Paul has just given you in a nutshell the amazing benefits, the amazing security of this hope of salvation. Rejoice in him, sing in him for what he's given you. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your amazing love. Lord, I pray for us that we would believe what you've told us is true as amazing and as fantastic unthinkable it is I pray that you would help us to grasp how incomprehensible how astounding what you have done for us and what you continue to do for us is I pray that we would stand in awe. Lord, I pray that we would just melt in the face of what you've done for us. And I pray that you would stir up in us such a, a gratefulness. I pray that you would stir up in us the kind of faith that sinks deep into this and holds on to it and refuses to let it go.
We pray that you would grant us all that you've promised. In Christ's name, amen.